The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, brought to you by the founders of Sonder Studio. Artificiality is a podcast dedicated to understanding the emerging community that is humans and machines. We take the latest in the human side, decision science, psychology, and design, and put it together with advances in artificial intelligence and big data so that you can understand how to work better with machines and your fellow humans. We founded Sonder Studio to help people be more human in the age of AI. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and stay curious. We interview some of the top minds working at the intersection of humans and machines and make sure we have a few laughs along the way. If you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe and leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. We humans make a lot of decisions, apparently 35,000 of them every day. So how do we improve our decisions? Is there a process to follow? Who are the experts to learn from? Do big data and AI make decisions easier or harder? Is there any way to get better at making decisions in this complex, modern world we live in? To dig into these questions we talked with ourselves, we recently published our first book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. In this book, we've provided a guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Make Better Decisions is structured around 50 nudges that have their lineage and scholarship from behavioral economics, cognitive science, computer science, decision science, design, neuroscience, philosophy, and psychology. Each nudge prompts the reader to use their beautiful big human brain to notice when our automatic decision-making systems will lead us astray in our complex modern world and when they'll lead us in the right direction. In this conversation, we talk about our book, our favorite nudges at the moment, and some of the great minds who we have interviewed on artificiality, including Barbara Tversky, Jevin West, Michael Bungay-Stanier, Stephen Fleming, Stephen Sloman, and Tanya Lombroso. All right, Helen, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Well, I'm here all the time. I'm excited to talk with you about our new book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. I'm going to start with the question that we like to ask other people. What inspired you to write this book? The pandemic. Mm. Well, seriously, a couple of years ago when um, we were wondering how we were going to cope with all of these children living in our house the whole time, um, I took time to um, really research something that had always mattered to me around um, making decisions and making good decisions. And what became really interesting to me, and, and so interesting that I just literally could not put it down, is 
how um, we needed to there needed to be something that that integrated all of this fabulous science around decision making um, with what was happening in the world of of data and AI, because we've almost got these these two these two worlds colliding right now. On one side, you've got uh, the the science of um, of of humans, neuroscience and, and cognitive science and decision science, saying uh, that we're kind of broken and biased and um, all of that side of things. Um, with but we're really good at explaining things and we're really good at um, pattern recognition and and we're really good at taking risks and taking leaps and having insight. And then on the other side, you've got data and machines and machine learning and AI that um, lacks transparency but can have incredible predictive power. And this tension just became sort of an obsession. And what Make Better Decisions is really about is um, how to put those two things together. And when you put those two things together, what you find is there's no such thing as a process. You can't just walk down um, a process in a a linear way, checking things off, um, because that world doesn't exist. You've got humans with agency, and you've got machines with agency, and you've got... Um, complexity in the world that uh, is just that makes decision making much more um, challenging and so it occurred to me that what we really needed was to think about this as a practice and um, that's where the book came from was how do we put this together in a way that people can start practicing things uh, and over time start making better decisions I like how you bring up the sort of the conflicting forces or perhaps conflicting new knowledge in human intelligence and in data and AI. One of the things that comes up in the book is that data, big data in particular, makes decision-making harder. You think it's going to make it easier, but it actually makes it harder. Talk a bit about why. Well, there's a couple of different reasons why. Um, there's, There's sort of the obvious, which is that um, there's this immense sort of scale and lack of transparency and opacity in the way that data and what that data actually is. Um, and so that, that makes it tricky. It makes it hard to audit databases in the same kind of way um, if, if indeed it's a database, you know, real-time data feeds. Um, the kinds of data that we're using uh, are often collected subconsciously or outside of our conscious awareness, you know, mouse clicks or eye tracking. So we don't really know what those are as they're used as proxies for emotional state or, or behavior. And, and a lot of people don't necessarily touch that kind of data, but it is happening all the time. It's happening whenever we're online. Um, it, it's, it's harder with big data to make decisions because we're... Um, it's not always obvious when we're sort of subject to automation bias, where we um, don't really even, we're not really even consciously aware that we are making a decision. Or sometimes we feel completely flooded with decisions and, and get very tired of making them. So I think there's that component. Um, there's also uh, the, the sort of more, I guess, um, 
scientific, uh, how would you put it, sort of an existential problem of um, what do you even really know is true? Is epistemic is really the word I'm looking for, I guess. Is with so much data um, and such a deluge of data at us all the time, work particularly, um, how can you actually know anything is, is true or real? Because you're always waiting for that next data feed or that next update. So I think for, for people that um, are trained and, and schooled in this, it's not as overwhelming, but I think that for um, a lot of us, it's, it's really quite an overwhelming, um, almost anti-human position to be in. Um, and I think that makes that that we see that right. We see that a lot when we talk to people, and we're actually intimidated by how much data there is. And I think that intimidation is alienating. Sort of makes them feel like they don't belong in this data-driven culture. And that's just simply not true. You know, if you can if you can read a chart, you can you're in the data-driven culture. It's just a matter of using the same skills that we've always used, but you have to just be so much sharper with them. Reading charts, thinking critically. Sure, but then there's the next layer, which is understanding your own reasoning process and having a better sense of of uh, your the the state of your own knowledge. Um, and uh, you know, Jill Lepore on her terrific um, podcast, The Last Archive, a couple of years ago, we took a quote uh, from her and used in the book um, that you know that. Things are data is only readable by machines now, so in some ways there's a there's some real truth to the fact that that only machines know the truth. It makes it hard. So the throughout the book um, references to a group of people called the Great Minds. Um, how did you find them? How did you select them? How did you think about who to who to include in that particular group of people to inform this book? Because it's the book is not just ideas that we came up with. Uh, actually, they're almost uh, almost exclusively ideas that we 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 gathered and and connected and linked among other people's you know academic works or practices. How did that start? The ultimate serendipitous peripatetic curiosity wandering. <laughs> I mean, there's some obvious ones. I mean, Danny, Danny Kahneman has to be in there. I mean, it, it just say no more um, but most people um, that we found from Great Minds we, we sort of you and I found them basically by um, reading and talking to other people and being referred in and being in, you know knowing people who had something to interesting to say about this whether they're academics who have studied it, things their entire career like Steve Sloman um, or whether uh, MBS Michael Bungay-Stania who we um uh, who I originally read his book when I was um, going through cancer treatment and and uh, then happened to, we both happened to sit across from him just randomly at dinner, dinner in Portugal yeah. and uh, and find and strike up a great friendship. So, and so I think there's a, one of the things that I'm really proud of about Make Better Decisions is it is very broad and um, we've gone, we've tried to, to capture sort of key thinking and decision-making from the scientific side, uh, as well as being able to pull in the people who are really leading the charge about what it means to 
to tackle data in a very real sense. You know, the, the conversation that we had with Jevin West, who the, uh, from University of Washington, um, I found uh, him and Carl through, I think, Twitter, probably. But their, uh, or maybe calling bullshit was was in a New York Times article. I don't know, but it it piqued my interest because their their uh, course and book on calling uh, calling bullshit, which is basically how to look at data and how to think in the digital age, sort of a refresh of critical thinking. It's a very popular course out of University of Washington. Um, I did the online course and 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 laughed and learned a lot. And, um, you know, I use their work a lot. I think about it a lot. And um, when we talked to Jevin, one of the things that sort of really came up is, yeah, we're not imagining this. This is hard. And and uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, correlation doesn't imply causation. And that's drilled into people over and over again. And yet he was able to tell a story at the very start of COVID about how a number of epidemiological studies, people had made that exact mistake. And it makes you realize you can't just print out a list of rules and put them on the wall in front of you, in front of your desk, and expect <laughs> expect and sort of naturally be a quote-unquote rational decision maker. That's just not how people work. So our great minds, which I think was your, your term, I think we sort of come up with that on a walk somewhere, um, our great minds are, are just are people that we've either talked to or people we know or people that we admire from afar who have made a great contribution in this space. One of the other things that really strikes me about decisions is, and people may think that there's actually some really obvious great minds missing. Um, You know, Richard Thaler would be one. And um, because when you you write a book called Nudge and you talk about decision-making, you sort of expect to be in a book about decision-making decision making that includes 50 nudges. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is that this is really more uh, recognising that decisions aren't... Yes, a decision in terms of decision science is a specific um, alternative that's been crafted for you. A yes or a no or an either or or this or that or an if or a then. But the reality is that most of our decisions don't come to us like that. Um most of our decisions are, are sort of, they, they almost sort of creep up on us and they're, they're mixed up with our goals and they're mixed up with other things that go into the pot. Um, and they're more complicated than, than just a, should I do this or that? So there's a bit of this or that in, in this book, but a lot of it's really about um, refining your judgment and, and recognising that our judgment is... Um, part emotional, part rational, sort of depends on our mood, even depends on the weather, you know, crazy stuff like that, and and sort of, I don't know, relaxing or embracing that aspect of being human because that's got a bad rap recently, but the reality is it's also where our creativity comes from. And so if we're too fixated on, you know, checking our cognitive biases... Um, we'll fail to come up with something new. And um, nothing's more important in the digital age than maintaining our creativity. I think it's a very fair comment that there's plenty of people who could have been included, right? This wasn't intended to be a book that included everyone who's ever said anything interesting and meaningful and helpful in the world of decisions. 
Um, we humans make so many decisions, it would be uh, impossible, I think, to talk about everyone who's said something interesting and important. Um, I do think it's interesting, um, you talk about Thaler and about nudges, and the book is structured around 50 nudges. Um, and in the book, we talk about how it is a intended as a practice, not as a process. And I think we came to that through the the practice or the, the delivery of our workshops around decision-making. And you know, we see there's always someone who walks in expecting to have a four-step process. And if you do this, 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 and this, then you're going to have a great decision. And it became very frustrating because you realize that there is no process, that you have to get nudged to improve your practice in some way and grab onto a nudge that's helpful to you in the moment or grab onto a nudge that you really want to focus on. And I'm curious, what would you pull out as a nudge that is you're thinking about now? Um, the, well, I'll go to the two great minds that probably um, opened my thinking the most in this process of discovery. Um, Tania Lombroso from Princeton and C. Fleming um, from University College London. And I had never heard of the word metacognition until Steve wrote a book about metacognition. And it was like, oh my goodness, that's someone's put a word on something that I've been wondering about. How do we really know the state of our own knowledge? And, and Tania's work on um, the, the role of explanations. And um, it sounds so obvious, right? That Because we, we explain things all the time. We explain them to ourselves, we, we explain them to our kids, we, we, we explain all the time. But I hadn't realised how important explanations were and how an explanation um, is generative, how it changes our thinking. Um, for example, you think about what it's like when you... Um, that, that old adage of, well, put something in your own words. And if you go into a lecture and... Uh, you don't really understand what the lecturer said. You'll just say back what that lecturer said. But if you understand it, you'll say something different. You'll explain it in your own words. And so the the nudges that um, change things the probably the most for me in terms of my own personal approach to decision-making is around engaging your metacognition and being much more thoughtful about the state of your own knowledge and learning ways to, to check... Um, to, to really be conscious of, 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 of when you're out over your skis and being conscious of when you're out over your own skis, what does that feel like? What are the consequences going to be? What is that, what's the, the relative benefit of doing that too? Because sometimes that can actually be, you know, other people go, oh, yeah, I'm with you. And then, you, you know, you're the classic consultant. You're 24 hours ahead. And um, but in Tanya's work on presuppositions, you know, I think we've got a nudge in there around um, you know being aware of the presuppositions that run in your own head when you hear someone else's explanation. That is one of the most advanced nudges in the book, in my opinion, because it takes a lot of practice to slow your own thinking down and and not just listen to someone, but listen to yourself at the same time. But you can, you can get so much value out of um, having that almost dual thought process running in your mind. Like, you're, you explain to me 
you know, why we're not going to go hiking this weekend because there's just too much to do. And I'm sitting there, uh, at, back in the old days, would have been really sort of like uh, resisting that. <laughs> this is very hypothetical. Um, resisting that thought. But now I'm much more aware of why I'm thinking what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking you're thinking that too. And that all sounds very sort of recursive and circular, but it's in those, it's in all of the spaces in between of those threads that you actually suddenly have this sort of sense of what's really going on. And I think it's almost like, I don't know, it's kind of like meta-listening. You end up listening to the listening. And um, those two, those two, those two people, um, I think, have made an enormous contribution to the to the science of decision making, but really kind of indirectly. So I'm really proud they're in the book. I'll, I'll give you two that have been on top of my mind recently. One uh, is Wallow from MBS, and um, that came up because one of our children approached us with a very um, challenging problem recently, and. Uh, and it was a problem where there's sort of a, sort of a, a sort of an instinct to, to, to do something, take action. And that's, that's sort of what people would encourage uh, is to, to go do that and take care of this, you know, stand up, declare it. Yeah, it know. felt like something where instant action was yeah. done. You need a solution. Need a solution. And, um, and I brought up wallow, which is to wallow in the problem. And to stay in the problem as long as possible because at some point the solution will become clear. And frequently the solution will be something you wouldn't have thought of initially. But when you do get to it, it feels so much more conclusive that that is the solution because you spent so much time truly understanding the problem. And uh, I don't know how often... MBS uses the word wallow, but he used it on the podcast, and we grabbed that one, and thank you, Michael, for that. Uh, we appreciate it, but it was a, a fa- it's a fantastic nudge to just come, and we use it quite a lot with people, because we are wired as humans, I'm, you know, I'm using that you know, crazy term wired, but we, are, we, we have evolved to make decisions quickly because at times it benefits us. Quick, make a decision, you know. Um, yes, that is a threat, run away. But... Uh, so it's hard for us to stay in the problem. We're it's also an, socially conditioned to to come up with solutions. Yes. It's embarrassing to not know. Sure, the and you're the hero if you have the solution, and you look like you're kind of you know stuck in the mud if you're actually just spending a lot of time literally wallowing in the problem, and that doesn't feel good, and it doesn't feel comfortable to be in the problem. It feels good to have come up with a solution and to take action. That emotional positivity associated with coming with a solution is so strong. But holding yourself back allows you to truly understand the problem, and then the solution becomes so much clearer, and you can be much more um, approach the solution with so much more conviction. The second nudge that's been on my mind recently is actually one that I want to um, get back into practicing because I've gotten out of it, which is sketching. Um, and this came from Barbara Tversky, and it's a wonderful um, uh, part of uh, figuring out the problem and identifying a possible, you know, solution. Uh, thinking about what the uh, a decision might feel like. Um, I can use sketching to imagine 
you know, the future after a decision. I can use it to truly understand the, the factors that are going into it. But the act of actually um, putting your mind into the world, which is part of Barbara's, you know, theory in, in her book, Mind in Motion, that we don't just think in our minds, we actually put our minds into the world because our mind gets full of so much stuff. And for me, as a classic extrovert, where I'm not sure what I'm really thinking until I say it, one way to actually put it out there as an extrovert is to draw it. Even though I'm a terrible sketcher, um, I, uh, my sketching would never hang in a museum, ever, um, that act is actually quite powerful and helps provide clarity. Um, I think it's interesting that all four of the, 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 the nudges and the people we referenced have been previous guests on artificiality. So for those who are interested in dating back to them, what we, who we've talked about is Michael Bungay-Stanier and Stephen Sloman and Tanya Lombroso and Barbara Tversky. And Steve Fleming. And Steve Fleming. And I think I'm, we mo- almost got those in order in terms of the people when they've been on the, on the podcast but uh, encourage people to go back and listen to those. There's actually quite a lot of gems that are in those podcasts that, that informed uh, a lot of the, you know, the ideas in this book. Well, the, our discussion with Barbara Tversky was one of the most delightful conversations yes. I think I've ever had. And um, the, the way that she has um, brought to our attention in her book, Mind in Motion, um, just how much of our reasoning is spatial where we are, our dominant thinking, I guess, right now is that our that language is the mm-hmm. thing that, that that sort of shapes our thinking. Um, but the spatial, the stories around um, the spatial reasoning and the and the understanding of spatial reasoning are, are just terrific. They're just fantastic and um, so interesting. Um, so interesting, just how much of our Reasoning spatially is, um, you know, we, we can we can see it in our everyday experience. We can we can see it in other people. We can see it in animals, and um, that that her book is just is is fantastic, and and she was a, a delight to to talk to. Um, so I really enjoyed that. I I agree with you on sketching. I think um, the other thing that I've learned about sketching is that it's something that you can uh, use in a team to um, find the differences in people's understanding of a situation. Mm. Now, you get people to sketch what they believe is going on and to create, like, you could sketch a, I don't know, pick something random, uh, an organisation that's not functioning properly and get people to sketch what they think the nodes and connections are for either decision-making or just the way things get done. And every single person will draw a different diagram. And that is so revealing and so powerful to, to use such a simple tool. And especially now when our, uh, with the, how many digital tools we use, it's so wonderful to pick up something that's been around for 11,000 years and realize that it actually still rocks you know, a pencil and a piece of paper. <laughs> it's pretty uh, powerful. It's pretty powerful. And we do miss that. Uh, I, get, I think we do miss that aspect of, of uh, sort of all being together in, in the same in-person mm. workspace. But um, uh, we, the digital tools certainly help. And, and that's one of the things that um, I took from, from, from Barbara is I think she, in the, 
I think she's thinking that technology, we haven't even started to scratch the surface of what um, uh, new AI tools and other digital tools are going to do to help us think better when they're designed for our spatial reasoning, not just for our language reasoning. Now, that's why we all love Miro and Figma. Um, like any of these tools, they can kind of bloat and be misused. But gosh, they're helpful. You know, they really are. And that's because they, they do play to our spatial reasoning. So I, I love those, um, those, those nudges from her. Another one that I really love, which I found completely randomly um, from listening to uh, Sam Harris's meditation app discussions with Jonas Kaplan, uh, is, is a, one that comes from um, poker, which is Plug the Leaks. And something that poker players do where every single decision is part of a, a bigger pattern. So no decision's too small. So you just plug the leaks. And we we use that we use that all the time because it's a good it's how you actually knit bad it's how you change bad habits. You just make them you give yourself a, a faster feedback cycle on sort of on, on where things are just bad habits. You know, do you really and Steve Fleming talked about similar things with pre pre commitment. Don't, we had that wonderful conversation about don't have potato chips in the house if you don't want to eat them. Um, but those are those are sort of you know the few one street back type of. Um, I would never have found Jonas if I hadn't been wandering through a meditation app. What about you? What else is there? So the other ones that are grabbing me at the moment, um, I really like um, uh, who are the humans in the data. From, uh, that was inspired by Jevin West. Um, I find it to be a consistently helpful nudge uh, when you're trying to make a decision out of data. So easy to just look at data and say, well, this is what it is, and this is, this is, this is where the numbers are, and this is what we think you should be doing. And then to stop and ask who the humans in the data, to understand where the data comes from, to understand what humans might be missing from the data, to understand how you could look at the data differently because, of, because they're actual people. You know, there is such a, just a, to stop and think about what that actually means, to understand what gaps there might be in the data, because you're thinking about um, customer purchases over a period of time and you're missing something that is, you know, uh, based on seasonality of people's lives. You know, so there's all kinds of ways that you can, that by thinking about data as human, because the vast majority of data that is generated is actually generated by humans in some way or form. Uh, is to think about them. Um, the other one is that I've always loved is list which you have to believe. Um, to think about uh, ahead, what would you have to believe to make the opposite decision? And I've always found that to be powerful because it helps push against the decision you're making to help really solidify. Yep, this is the this is the decision I'm going to make because here's all the things that would make me believe the opposite. But it also helps you stay constantly questioning and when you have to reevaluate it. So if I really think this is the right decision, well, I remember saying that if X, Y, and Z happened, I'd have to do something different. I'm now seeing X happen, so what about Y and Z? So now I have to stop and go back and, and reassess, and maybe I have to think about changing my decision. Yeah, I think that one is a great one for... Um, it's, the, it's the best way of, of dealing with kind of confirmation bias I think and being able to 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 be a, a to have to have thought in advance mm. of of what would help you change your mind because I think it was it, it, it Kahneman who says that once you 
once you believe, it's very hard to unbelieve, basically. Yes. And uh, so you have to sort of almost pre-seed those unbelieving statements, if you like. Yeah, and that, that comes from Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner, who um, sprinkled throughout the book. Oh, total gurus, um, no question. <laughs> and speaking of Kahneman, I, I could I, it'd be completely remiss if I didn't bring up delay intuition, mm-hmm. which um, we use quite a lot because it is just so foundational. It is a yeah. weird... If, there, if, there's a, if there's one nudge... It would be that. That would be that. Human, human intuition is powerful. It's fast. It's um, cognitively cheap, you know, um, in comparison to And it's deep mostly analysis. good enough. And it's mostly good enough. And so it's really easy to rely on it. Mm. Um, and as Kahneman says, once you've formed an intuition, it's nearly impossible to, uh, to change it. Mm. Um, but it comes from experience, yeah. which comes from the past world and the stable world. And um, as the world gets more complex and affects them uh, non-linear and less the same as they were in the past, intuition is, is, is more problematic. So mm. uh, you're right, delay intuition is, is um, it, you know, if you had to put one nudge at the very top, I think you can't go past that one. Yes. <laughs> we do, and, and I think we're getting, we're getting better at that. We call each other out on that. Hey. Delay intuition. Another one that I that I think has become such a go to for us um, has been um, be less wrong. Mm. Is Adam Grant right? Very and, much so. Um, and it's it's really you know Adam Grant's work was finding that because uh, I think he went to he reproduced some work from Philip and uh, from Tetlock and Gardner mm. um, and found that the, the people who did the best forecasts were the ones who didn't focus on how to make their forecasts more right. They focused on how to make them less wrong. And and it plays to it sort of tease off another thing that we've become, we're much more likely to do now, which is being really, being really mindful about what area you prefer. And that's a Tetlock and Gardner idea as well, is, is um, which, which way do you want to be wrong? Do you want to, fail to predict the predictable or or the other way around. So, you know, even just recently we've been thinking about that on, on decisions around um, which uh, we were taking a vacation a week or so back and unexpectedly a, um, a major road was closed and we had to try and figure out what we were going to do with the rest of the day and how that would have, you know, have downstream consequences for the rest of the vacation. And then it was very much, well, would you rather? Would you rather be stuck here not able to do X but still getting to do Y or would you rather, you know, spend more time in the car but be ready to? And yeah. so the, the, that, that sort of how do you want to be wrong, being less wrong, um, I think as you get older that one's an easier one to do because you've just got more experience in what being wrong actually feels like. And I find it to be empowering though because if you're constantly um – judging your decisions, measuring your decisions based on how right you were, you're aspiring for something that is essentially impossible. You can't always be right. And right is almost a, um, this elusive target because you can't prove the counterfactual. Um, so it, it can feel so frustrating. Whereas being less wrong, when you're just a bit less wrong, that feels good if that's your objective. And so I find that to be empowering, I think, Adam, for that. Like you can actually just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just being a little bit better, which I think kind of comes back to the title of the book is that we're focused on making better decisions. 
not perfect decisions, not always right decisions, not the decisions that are going to make your life absolutely you know, wonderful. It's just making better decisions and going through that practice and thinking through these nudges hopefully allows just a little bit better. And if all you do is just a little bit better every time, then that's progress and hopefully makes people's, uh, makes people's decision-making better. That's the goal. That's the goal. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast, Helen. Well, thank you for allowing me into your office. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you all for listening. Um, We really appreciate it. Please uh, check out the book. Make Better Decisions is available today in print and ebook. And uh, we would love for you to uh, grab a copy. Uh, Please leave an honest review on Amazon uh, and Goodreads. That is very helpful. Uh, And reach out with any questions. You can find us. Uh, uh, the book site is mbd.zone. Our business website is getsonder.com. You can reach us at hello at getsonder.com and uh, reach out if you have any questions or thoughts or want to chat any more about the book. And of course, the book is on Amazon. Yes, the book is on Amazon and it is available to purchase today. It's